Now is the time we bring you the virtual stage of our Achieving Optimal Health Conference at Georgetown University. To experience this talk with all the videos, slides, and graphics, go to bbrconsulting.us and click on Conference. One more time, visit bbrconsulting.us. Thanks for staying curious and for living your best life with us. The way we take care of ourselves is ever evolving. And what we know for sure is that our mind and spirit are linked to our physical body and that our wellness seems to extend into our communities and the planet we all share. It is very, very clear that wellness is interconnected. We love spending time with you to explore and practice the breakthroughs, the insights, and the passions of incredible people helping us all see the world in a whole new light. This is Health Gig. This week on Health Gig, we have part two of our fascinating conversation with Dr. Daryl Shorter. He is the medical director of addiction services at the Menninger Clinic in Houston, Texas. If you missed part one last week, make sure you check that out too. And now, Dr. Daryl Shorter. Thank you so much for having me. Can you prescribe medication if it's not in the DSM? You can. Okay. Great question. The DSM is the stands for the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. Yes. Uh, it is the way that mental health clinicians go about diagnosing and classifying psychiatric and psychological conditions. We can prescribe medications for addictive disorders, not only medications that are FDA approved, but also non-FDA approved medications can be prescribed to treat addictions as well, both behavioral and substance use disorders. It may be helpful for our audience members to know because I talk to folks and it's like a lot of this information isn't out there, but there are a number of FDA approved medications to treat addiction. In the same way that you might go to a doctor, a nurse practitioner, PA, and, and say, hey, I've got depression, and they say, all right, I'm going to prescribe an antidepressant for you. We need to develop that same fluency and healthcare literacy where people might come in and say, all right, well, I'm struggling with alcohol. I'm struggling with nicotine. What are the medications that you can prescribe for me? Because it turns out that there are several. So for alcohol, we have desulfiram or antabuse. We have a medication called acamprosate, also known as Camprol, and we have naltrexone, also known as Rivia or Vivitrol, if it is given in a 30-day intramuscular injection formulation. Does it make your cravings for alcohol go down, or how does that work? So anti-craving is naltrexone and uh, acamprosate. Disulfiram or antabuse is a medication. We refer to it as an aversive therapy, meaning that someone knows if they are taking antabuse, if they drink on it, that they will get sick. So they will oh. get nausea, vomiting, flushing, headache. They'll feel quite ill. And so people that are taking desulfiram kind of know, well, I'm not going to, I'm not going to drink because I have this medication in my system. Those are alcohol meds. We've got for opioid use disorder, we have methadone, which has been in existence for decades and is prescribed primarily through opioid treatment programs. We also have suboxone, buprenorphine, naloxone, which works similar to methadone, but can be prescribed from an office-based setting. So you don't necessarily have to go to a methadone treatment program on a daily basis or an opioid treatment program on a daily basis in order to receive suboxone. You can get it weekly, biweekly, uh, monthly basis. And then naltrexone can also be used for opioid use disorder. And another plug, it's really important that people know about Narcan, naloxone, which is the 
antidote that people can use in, if, in case someone is experiencing an, an opioid overdose. Exactly. And Narcan is now available over the counter. Wow. And so you do not, it does not require a prescription. You can walk into any pharmacy and purchase it. However, and this is tough because, because cost can still be a barrier. If the last time I looked online to see how much it cost at, at one of our local pharmacies, it costs about $45. So if you are sort of living on the margins, don't necessarily have a, a number of financial resources available to you, even if you can walk into a pharmacy to get it, can you afford it? That can sometimes become another question. How effective are these drugs? That's a great and complicated question. So let me just say this. These medications can and do work, especially, I think, on the opioid side, buprenorphine, naloxone, or suboxone. Great medication should absolutely be prescribed to people that have opioid use disorder. There are, I think, questions and there's a conflict in the field about for how long someone should be prescribed that medication. Methadone absolutely works. There are certain people for whom methadone works better for than others. And then, of course, Narcan works. It's just about being able to get it into the hands of people so that they have access to it. On the side of alcohol, I think those medications work as well. It becomes an issue of whether or not people are adherent or yeah. if they're willing to take those medications. And there can be lots of complicated reasons around why it is that someone may or may not feel comfortable taking that medication. And it's not because, quote unquote, they're not motivated, right? It's not just that. Like Part of the work that we have to do is really helping people to understand like the complexity of their relationship to a substance. And that can also include why they may be more or less likely on a particular day to feel comfortable taking a medication for an addictive disorder. The final little bit I'll add about the medications is that there are a number of off-label medications that can be used to treat things like stimulant use disorder, cocaine use disorder, methamphetamine use disorder. And it's important that we acknowledge that because while we have a tendency to maybe perhaps focus on opioids because of the overdose epidemic, we are also seeing increases in stimulant-involved or stimulant-related overdose deaths as well, particularly methamphetamine. And there are a number of medications that have shown a positive signal in clinical trials research to treat stimulant use disorder. Now, one of the things that come up is people say, well, I don't want to take a medication off-label for something. I only want it if it's FDA approved. And to that, I, I say, well, we all know somebody that is on a baby aspirin for coronary artery disease prophylaxis, right? We all probably know someone that takes 81 milligrams of aspirin a day to prevent heart attack. It may be surprising to you to hear that aspirin is not FDA approved for coronary artery disease prophylaxis. We take medications off-label all the time. <laughs> Same thing is true for some types of chemotherapy. A chemotherapeutic agent might be yeah. FDA approved for one type of cancer, right. but then we you know, sort Bring of extrapolate it that it can be, yes, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because you've looked at it in clinical trials. So the idea that you have to wait for FDA approval for a particular medication, I just say, look to the evidence, look to the research. You know, for cannabis use disorder, there's no slam dunk medications. There's no medications that have shown really strong evidence across multiple trials. Uh, but there is one medication, gabapentin, I'll talk about today, gabapentin, also known as Neurontin, that has some, in the research they may call it weak evidence or low quality evidence, but it's something. 
it means that maybe there is for some people the potential for benefit. And I also encourage people to think about what are you asking the medication to do? Are you trying to take someone who uses cannabis eight times a day and they've been doing that for 20 years all the way to zero overnight because you prescribed a medication for them? Or perhaps what you're trying to do, which, and that may seem completely daunting. It sounds daunting to me, right? To go from 60 to zero. Maybe what you're trying to do is you're trying to reduce some of the withdrawal symptoms that people are experiencing, to reduce some of the anxiety that they might be experiencing if they're trying to make this type of change. And you're using the medication as a way of perhaps retaining them in treatment so that they continue to come back for psychotherapy and you're working with them around issues related to sleep because sleep can sometimes be disturbed as people try to make changes related to their cannabis use. And so the question for me is, what are you trying to do with the medicine? Are you trying to get them to become completely abstinent or are you using that as part of a comprehensive holistic Plan. treatment, which will address anxiety and insomnia and sleep and appetite and mood and all of these other things as well? Can you get addicted to the medications that you use to treat addiction? What I will say is that rarely. I remember uh, tobacco use disorder, which I haven't touched on as much, but smoking, e-cigarettes, vaping has become a huge public health issue, especially among adolescents and young adults recently. I remember when nicotine replacement came out, the patch and the gum. And all of a sudden, you saw people using the gum instead of smoking, not because they were trying to quit smoking, but rather because they were trying to continue get the to nicotine. get the nicotine and dip in places where they might not have otherwise, which I think is still maybe perhaps still a positive exchange because you're not smoking, you're using the gum instead. You, you would hear sort of anecdotal reports about people starting nicotine gum and then finding that's the amount of gum that they chew went up, 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 up. <laughs> or you might have people who, you know, especially in our perhaps more historical cultural context, think about people getting on methadone and becoming these sort of, I'll use kind of a pejorative term here, like the idea that they would become these zombies almost, right? Like, and you hear that terminology used often in psychiatry, I think, not just about methadone and also about antidepressants or other types of medications as well. I don't want to feel like a quote unquote zombie. And so there, I think, can be some concerns that people that are on methadone are overusing the medication or using it inappropriately. You might also hear that about Suboxone as it relates to opioid use disorder. But what we have found in research, and I think certainly clinically, is that oftentimes when people take things like Suboxone, say they're getting it from someone other than a doctor, from someone other than it being prescribed for them, they're getting it kind of through those means. Usually they're getting Suboxone not because they are trying to get quote-unquote high, not because they're trying to experience euphoria. Rather, their use of Suboxone is rooted in trying to not have symptoms of opioid withdrawal. So oftentimes people that come into care have had Suboxone before, but that was really because they were trying to treat their opioid use disorder without coming in to see us, or perhaps they didn't have access or means to do that. So I kind of think we have to maybe complicate our understanding of sort of how and why it is that people use substances and the circumstances 
that might contribute to why it is that someone might use those types of things. But, you know, we've been watching this unfold over the last couple of decades with prescription pain relievers and the impact that that has had on people. I think we are seeing that to perhaps a lesser extent, perhaps a lesser extent with prescription stimulant medications uh, around ADHD or attentional challenges. So I, I don't, or, you know, people taking benzodiazepines for anxiety or those other types of, of mental health conditions for which people might take Valium and Ativan or Xanax. So yes, the potential for addiction is present. So I don't want to say that it's not. We can certainly see people develop a challenging, complicated relationship to substances, even while they are actively in treatment for it. You know, how do addictions develop? And when? I mean, how much it, time I got? I know, I know. <laughs> this is so... What we know about the development of addictions is that it is a multifaceted, multifactorial, complicated condition. And there are a number of risk factors that are present on the biological side of things. So we can look to things like the genetics. We can look to things like family history. We can look to temperament and personality, which are biologically based. So some people come to the planet and they are more impulsive than others. Some people come to the planet and they are more risk-taking. Some are more risk-averse. Some are more novelty-seeking. That's biology, the biology and genetics of temperament. What that translates into are the folks that spend a lot of time around children or caregivers or parents. They might relate to this. You have two kids raised in the same family, separated by one or two years in age. Ostensibly, parents will try to raise those kids the same way. And one kid can play quietly in the living room, and the other kid is like, Jumping off of the tops of cabinets <laughs> and counters because they love risk and they love novelty. You know, that's just how we sort of come to the planet. But what that may translate into in high school, college, the military, young adulthood is that a person might be a little bit more intrigued, interested in using a substance. Peers are a major part of that. Like, so what your peers are doing or not doing can also contribute to whether or not someone might be more or less likely to try a substance. The culture in the family around substance use. So if you watched parents or siblings engage in substance use outside of even the family history genetic piece of it, what's the culture in the family around drinking and drug use? Are kids and adolescents watching parents drink every night or drink on weekends or take edibles or smoke weed? Like what's the parent's relationship to substances? It's hard to convey to a 14 or a 15 year old the quote-unquote right. risks or dangers of adolescent cannabis use while you yourself are also engaging in cannabis use. That's a very complicated conversation that I think we've really been confronted with over the last five to 10 years because of the increased legalization of recreational cannabis use. It's not like it wasn't when I was growing up in like the 80s. It was like kind of right. gateway theory, don't do it, carte blanche. And now I think parents are really having a much more challenging conversation around substance use. You take all that together and then you add in things like marketing and advertising. How many ads of like cigarettes or vapes are adolescents and young adults being exposed to the neighborhood where someone lives in and the amount of cohesion, really it's neighborhood cohesion that really seems to be a part of it. What's taking place in the school? Is there the presence of another psychiatric condition? 
I want you to note that like I'm saying that kind of toward the end because there's this belief that people only use substances to treat an underlying psychiatric yeah. condition. That's not always true. <laughs> I remember one of the first times I was giving a lecture to the residents at Baylor and I asked the question, you know, like, why do you think people use drugs or why might people initiate alcohol or drug use? Oh, well, they're depressed. Oh, they've experienced trauma, all of the trauma they've experienced or, you know, they just must be so anxious. And I said, actually, you ask some of these kids, yes, that may be their story, but a lot of them are curious and it's readily available or a friend did it or they thought it would be fun or interesting and they're bored. Not all substance use like is born of this like horrible trauma. Of course, for some people it is, but that's not necessarily a universal experience. And so we really have to think about kind of the complexity of why it is that someone is even perhaps vulnerable to going on to initiate substance use and then progress from use to use disorder. Is it true that the younger you start, the brain isn't developed and that can trigger the addiction or how does that work? It depends. And this is going to look a little different, I think, over the coming years as well. So let me start with alcohol. It does seem that in some ways, there's a couple different groups. There are people that might initiate early alcohol use. And the earlier they initiate, the more likely they may be to go on to develop an alcohol use disorder. And at the same time, we know that there are particular phases of life where alcohol use is problematic. Think college, think military, if someone enlists right out of high school, those environments can be very pro-drinking and heavy episodic alcohol use or binge drinking is pro-social and encouraged in those environments. And people can experience negative consequences from their relationship to alcohol during those stages of life. We're saying 18 to 22, 19 to 23. And the brain is not fully developed by that point, okay? And then what happens? Well, people get out of the military and they go back home or they get a job or they graduate from college and they go to graduate school or they get a job. They may get partnered. They might have children. Like uh, Things in their life change. And all of a sudden, this drinking behavior that was pro-social and pro-bench drinking during this phase of their life isn't so pro-social anymore. And so maybe they met criteria for alcohol use disorder during college while they're in the military. They get out and it has improved. For some people, yes. For some people, no. And so I think it's important for us to sort of acknowledge that the natural trajectory for some people can include a kind of spontaneous recovery. And they may not even necessarily have identified themselves as ha or been identified as having an alcohol use disorder during that phase, but had they happened to come into the office of Dr. Shorter, I would have right. diagnosed them. Uh -huh. See yeah, what I mean? Yeah. But in that environment, like, yes, it's problematic. I'm not saying it's not problematic. I'm just also saying that it's like the peers are in those situations. And so people don't necessarily attach negative consequences, consciously attach negative consequences to it in the same way. Cannabis is a little different, right? So cannabis, especially because we're seeing, you know, adolescents using cannabis and we're seeing an increase in the potency of cannabis as well. So a lot of times people will talk about like, well, many of the earliest studies took place and the potency of that THC product, THC being the psychoactive ingredient or psychoactive agent in cannabis, 
was low percentage, like 6%, 7%, 8%. But now, you know, people are using THC products that might be 20, 25, 30% THC. And so the potency has gone up. So what does that mean for people that are starting younger, heavier cannabis users, higher potency THC product? And, you know, in the field, in the community, people are saying kind of anecdotally, it seems or it feels like more and more people are presenting with cannabis-induced anxiety disorders, cannabis withdrawal, cannabis use disorder, like the cannabis is having maybe more negative impact on adolescents and young adults than we might, might hope. I actually just listened to a podcast about that. And again, it's kind of surprising, right? Because we all thought that we were okay using it. Interesting. Yeah. And I think it really is that potency conversation is the one that is the issue in many ways. And also, I think even before we got to potency, there were concerns about an increased risk of going on to develop psychosis. So a condition like schizophrenia, for example, if one initiated cannabis use during adolescence. Now, there's no clear causal link. So it's not that they have been able to sort of definitively scientifically prove that if you use cannabis during yeah. adolescence, that is what caused it. However, there is certainly an increased risk of going on to develop psychosis in people have who that. Yeah. had the genetic, the genetic predisposition. predisposition. Right. Exactly. That's right. That's right. Can you ever determine if someone... Because I know somebody as an adolescent was, became an addict and also had schizophrenia. Can you ever determine what comes first? Yeah. When we are thinking about persons with the co-occurrence of like schizophrenia and cannabis use disorder, I will generally have to just acknowledge that it probably was the combination of factors as opposed to a single factor that resulted or contributed to the development of either one. And that's true for really anyone with psychotic disorder. Like, rarely can you pinpoint the thing or the factor. It's probably a combination or confluence of factors, both psychological as well as genetic. And when I talk genetic, I'm not talking about even a single gene. I'm talking about probably multiple genes that contribute to this interaction between the genes and the environment. That's ultimately how we kind of describe it, the gene plus environment and interaction. And what does healing look like for someone like that? Again, I think that's where it becomes important to have conversations with people about what their values and goals are for themselves. So I can have a really sort of lofty idea about what healing looks like for the person, but really I think it begins with like, well, what do you want for yourself? What do you see for yourself? And can we help you to work toward that particular goal? And in what ways are these goals consistent with your values? So we have to have this much more, we have to take it back a step and have a values-based conversation. Because really when we live in a manner that is consistent with our values and we're accomplishing goals that are consistent with our values, that's how we ultimately can create meaning in our lives. That's how we ultimately experience healing for ourselves. And I don't determine that for other people. They determine it for themselves. Now, I'm happy to participate in that conversation with them. And so when I was in residency, well, you know, we would fixate so much on people's symptoms, like how's your sleep? How's your appetite? Are you hearing voices? Yes or no? Is your paranoia gone? Or are you only paranoid a little bit? Like we spent a lot of time becoming so symptom focused. And that makes sense because we use the symptoms to help us determine medications, 
which ones to use, which ones to not use, when to use them, what dosage we should go up on or down on. So symptoms, it's not that they're unimportant. And at the same time, I don't know that symptoms are the only way by which people kind of experience their lives. Like, so for someone, they might say, all right, well, I may struggle with paranoia. So it is important for me to have two trusting relationships. Okay, great. That's what we'll work toward. How do we help you within the context of this frame where you're struggling with paranoia, which may or may not ever go away, help you to develop a couple of trusting relationships? Or you know, people live with depression, they live with anxiety, they live with obsessive compulsive disorder, they live with a history of trauma. Maybe all of those symptoms never go away. But that doesn't mean that they can't have meaningful lives or relationships with other people's or relationship with themselves or a work life that is satisfying or a recreational life that is fulfilling. Activities and hobbies and interests that they find meaningful and that sort of enrich their lives and their spirits. Like you can do that even in the presence of symptoms. And this may be challenging for folks. You can do that even if you are actively using substances. This gets challenging for folks, right? Because it challenges our societal and cultural understandings of what it means to use drugs and to use substances. But there are people who have meaning in their lives who also engage in substance use. Your life does not necessarily have to be devoid of meaning or connection if you are engaging in substance use or you have a substance use disorder. I do think that perhaps what we can encourage people to think about is how can we enhance that? How can we move you into a direction that maybe feels perhaps a bit more meaningful for you if that's what the person wants? Like you said, it just is really important for them to identify what they want. And that's what makes you good or someone in conversation participating because you help them figure out what they want. Really quick question. People use the word psychosis or they're going to have that psychosis event. What is that? Language, of, I think, is really, really important. And you know, we sort of interchangeably use terminologies within the field. And so I'm, I really appreciate this part of the conversation. So psychosis, from an academic medical psychiatric standpoint, refers to several different types of symptoms can fall under the banner of psychosis. Perceptual distortions is one way of someone manifesting psychosis. Maybe they are hearing voices that aren't really there. They may be seeing things. Those are visual hallucinations, seeing things that aren't really necessarily there. They may have delusional thinking or bizarre beliefs. They may be paranoid in nature, or they might believe that they are able to move furniture with their minds or something like that. Sometimes people's thinking, their thought process can become disorganized, or their behavior can become disorganized or catatonic. So we kind of think about those along those lines. Sometimes people might struggle with things like motivation. They might struggle with sort of cognition or maybe interpreting the faces of other people in a way that's accurate. So all of that can kind of fall under the banner of psychosis. When we talk about people who use substances, we allow people to self-identify as alcoholic or addict, but we really try to refer to folks as people in the same way that we kind of gotten away from calling people schizophrenic or calling people diabetic. 
This is a person with schizophrenia, this is a person with diabetes, this is a person with alcohol use disorder, person with substance use disorder. And then we really have stopped talking about relapse as well. We're trying to change that language. And we talk about people, if they have had a reoccurrence or recurrence of their substance use, we just find that that is much more, I think, medically accurate and hopefully reduces a lot of that stigma and bias that people can experience as well. So language is like a, another thing that I love talking about because I think it does so much to help bust yeah, stigma. I think so too. Oh my gosh, we have There's so, so much, much to there. talk uh, about. <laughs> Love to have you back on. I would oh, love good. to come back. I'd love to. Because there's so much more to talk about. Oh, yes. my gosh. <laughs> so, Dr. Shorter, wow. Thank you so much for coming on Health Gig today. We've just learned so much. Thank you. And it's just wonderful to meet you and hear about all the good work you're doing. I've really enjoyed the conversation, and I look forward to Absolutely. our next time. Thank you for joining us on Health Gig. We loved having you with us. We hope you'll tune in again next week. In the meantime, be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast and follow us on healthgigpod.com. I'm Trisha. And I'm Doro. Be well. We're excited to have best-selling author Dr. Jennifer Freed with us at the Gasparilla Inn in November this year. She's an author and renowned psychological astrologer that works with Gwyneth Paltrow of Goop and other celebrities to see how wellness, astrology, and personal growth add up. Join us for our yearly Foundations of Wellness experience by calling the Gasparilla Inn at 877-764-1420 or visiting their website at the-gasparilla-inn.com.